This is Church History in 10 Minutes, where you can learn everything you need to know about church history in around 10 minutes. My name is Aaron Land. I'm the lead pastor at Waleska First Baptist Church, and I teach New Testament and theology at the Global Institute for Theological Training. Last week, we talked about Augustine and the close of the imperial age. This week, we're going to begin to look at the medieval church. The world was changing, and it was changing rapidly. New kingdoms were coming to power. Old kingdoms were crumbling. The church, for 400 years, had existed within the context of the Roman Empire. For the last hundred years, it had been the official religion of the empire. But now the pressing question was this, could the church survive and even thrive apart from the empire? And that's what we aim to look at in the next few minutes. The fall of the Western Roman empire had opened the door for many independent kingdoms to fill the vacuum. Kingdoms from the north quickly began to head south to establish dominance on the Apennine Peninsula and in northern Africa. Now, time doesn't permit us to have a detailed discussion of each of these kingdoms, but at the very least, let me just mention the major kingdoms so that you can have a basic picture of what the Mediterranean region looked like during the 5th and 6th centuries. The Eastern Roman Empire still ruled the area that's now modern-day Greece, Turkey, Israel, and Egypt. The Vandals had come down from Spain, crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, and settled in northern Africa, and they occupied what's modern-day Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. To the north, you had the Visigoths, and they controlled the region that's now Spain and some of southern France. The Franks and the Burgundians controlled what is now France and Germany. The Saxons and the Lombards controlled the areas in modern-day Poland, Belarus, Latvia, and Estonia. The Irish were in Ireland. They kind of always just stayed to themselves over there. Uh, The Angles and the Saxons were in the southern half of the British Isles. And finally, on the Apennine Peninsula itself, in Rome, modern-day Italy, and then up into Austria, you had the Ostrogoths. And, of course, they controlled Rome and thus for a time, the Western Church. So now that you're an expert in the geography of medieval Europe, let's carry on. Now, it's important to understand that these kingdoms and the geographic regions under their control were not static. They were very, very fluid. So throughout the next 400 years, these kingdoms would jockey for position. They would divide, they would conquer, they would consume, they would combine with each other. Uh, So to give you an example, the city of Rome at different points during this period of time was under the rule of the Goths, the Vandals, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and the Lombards. Uh, Attila the Hun almost got Rome, but a vision of St. Peter and Paul sent the very superstitious Attila running for the hills. Uh, Now, this became a very interesting time for the Western church because there was so much turnover in the ruling kingdoms the church, and specifically the bishop of the church in Rome, became the most consistent leader for the people of the former Western Empire. And they actually began to call this bishop the Pope, which meant father. Now, we're going to come back to that for more detail in a moment. But for now, we need to understand that the people 
of the former Western Empire began looking at their bishops and specifically this bishop, the Bishop of Rome, they began looking at them differently. In the tumultuous times, they began to be viewed more as heads of state and less as religious or spiritual leaders. Now, up in Ireland, things were unusually different. Ireland has a very interesting church history. And it's interesting that this country became so Catholic in later years. Because during this time, they really wanted to be distinct from the Western and Eastern churches. The Irish church believed that they were unstained by the political meddling of the churches of Rome and Constantinople. The Irish church, under the leadership of a monk named Columba, began to send missionaries to the Scots, the Angles, and the Saxons. They established a missionary community, in fact, in Scotland, called Iona, that still exists today in almost the exact condition that it did in the 5th century. And this group wrote beautiful hymns like the one you're listening to now, Be Thou My Vision. The Irish church was also the first group of Christians to introduce the idea of auricular confession or private confession to a priest. Eventually, the Irish church would succumb to the pressures of the Church of Rome. But these little communities of Irish monks and missionaries are a testament to their brighter days. Back in the Western Church, the two biggest changes of this period were with monasticism and the papacy. In the East, if you remember, monasticism had originally been a way to escape the imperial church and its hierarchy. In the West, under the leadership of a monk named Benedict, monasticism became a vital part of the hierarchy of the church. Benedict wrote a book called The Rule, in which he outlined an ordered and disciplined system of living in community. Benedictine monks would work in agriculture, medicine, teaching, and in caring for the sick and the culturally marginalized. They would provide training for children and for future church leaders. They would copy the Bible and other religious works for distribution in the church. In short, the monks under Benedict became the workhorses of the church. In fact, monasteries became sort of this training network from which to choose new deacons, priests, teachers, and bishops. It became an incredibly effective method of influencing and indoctrinating whole communities. It became a very powerful resource for the church. The papacy was also changing. The political uncertainty in the West had left the populace with very little trust in the kings and their kingdoms. But the church was constant. The church cared for the sick, the widowed, and the orphaned. The church provided hospitals and schools and asylum for those seeking help. The people saw as the head of the church the bishop of Rome, the pope, the father. They began to look to the pope for help and for assistance and for guidance. In the year 440, a man named Leo became bishop of Rome. Pope Leo was a strong leader that acted as a political diplomat for Rome and for the territories under her care. 
When Attila and his Huns tried to invade Rome, Leo marched out against him. Attila would later say that he saw standing on either side of Leo, Peter and Paul, and decided to stop his conquest in its tracks. Later, when the Vandals sacked Rome, it was Leo who negotiated with their king and convinced him not to burn the city to the ground. The people of Rome and its surrounding regions began to look at the Pope as their true leader and advocate. Leo became convinced that he was God's chosen leader. In fact, he became convinced that God had chosen Peter to lead his church, and therefore that God had chosen all of Peter's successors to be leaders of the church. With all that Leo accomplished for the people of Rome, they believed that he was right. In the year 579, Pelagius II became pope. During his time as pope, the Lombards tried to take Rome. Pelagius first appealed to the Eastern Empire for help, but realizing that no help was going to come from the East, he bought off the Lombards and formed an alliance with the Franks in the north. And this alliance would prove to be a lasting one, as the Franks would eventually become the greatest supporters of the Roman papacy. In the year 590, Gregory the Great became pope of the Western Church. And he was the first pope to truly be recognized as the de facto ruler of Rome. In the 14 years that he served as pope, he tackled Rome's growing sanitation issues. He rebuilt the aqueducts, supplying Rome with plenty of clean water. He turned around Rome's struggling economy, and he brokered a peace treaty with the Lombards. He also expanded Rome's areas of of influence throughout the Apennine Peninsula. This was the shape the papacy was taking. The bishop of Rome was being recognized as a head of state. The church, not an empire of its own, was becoming like an empire. It was expanding its regions. It was making peace, and soon it would also be making war. We asked that question at the beginning. Could the church survive without the Roman Empire? And I suppose the answer to that question lies in how you define the church. The church in Rome began to look much more like an empire than it did the churches of the New Testament. In that way, I guess you could say that the church survived the fall of the Western Empire. But they were veering woefully off course. And it would be nearly a thousand years before the reformers would try to bring them back around. Next week, we're going to take a look at Muhammad and the Arab conquests. We'll look at how the church responded to the attacks of a different religious force. And we'll try to understand the tensions between Islam and Christianity that exist to this day. You are my wisdom. You are my true love.